KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Say, they told me you were stupid. You don't sound stupid to me. I can be smart when it's important, but most men don't like it. Can Marilyn Monroe teach us anything? Find out as TCM host Alicia Malone shares lessons she's learned from a life of watching women in movies. Welcome back to listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. This year, TCM Classic Film Festival returns in person to Hollywood. TCM host Alicia Malone and TCM programmer Scott McGee will both be at the festival to sign copies of their new books. Malone's book is Girls on Film, and it's a wonderfully personal and engaging journey through the films and the women who influenced Malone the most. McGee's book offers an action-packed tribute to Danger on the Silver Screen, 50 films celebrating cinema's greatest stunts. Both Malone and McGee join me to discuss their books and the movies in their lives. Cinema Junkies on a season break, but I love the TCM Classic Film Festival and did not want to miss an opportunity to talk about films I love with people who are as passionate as I am. Alicia Malone has been a Cinema Junkie guest before, joining me to discuss classic Hollywood musicals. Scott McGee is joining me for the first time, but we bonded over a love for movie stunts. Cinema Junkie will be back next month for a new season. But for now, enjoy this bonus episode dedicated to all those people who just love watching movies. First up is Alicia Malone. Her book, Girls on Film, Lessons from a Life of Watching Women in Movies, is not a list of films or an exploration of a genre, but rather a very personal look at the films that most touched her life. I began by asking her how she wanted to structure her book. Yeah, this is my first time being quite personal. My first book was about film history and and women throughout Hollywood history. My second book was about film analysis and favorite films directed by women. So I saw this as kind of a very loose trilogy where now I would try to mix personal memoir with film history and film analysis. And I started thinking about the idea for this book at the beginning of the pandemic when I was locked in my apartment and I noticed the types of films I would turn to for comfort. And a lot of them were movies I used to watch as a child. And I think that's something we all felt at that time, the the need for nostalgia for something that felt very certain during an uncertain time. So I started to think more about what films have meant to me over my years and try to structure it in a way that could weave movies and personal memoir together. It's not, you know, an an entire memoir about my life, but it's snapshots of my life and the films that I was inspired by and the women I was inspired by at that time. And one of the things you kind of ask in this book is why do we watch films? Why do each of us choose to watch movies and what kind? So what kind of an answer did you end up finding for yourself? Well, I was really interested in that. I always believed that I watched movies for answers. Being such an introverted child, being very shy and not wanting to ask my parents or any adult anything embarrassing (laughs) and everything about being a girl was embarrassing to me as a teenager. I always thought that I turned to movies to figure out life's big questions. And I'm sure it taught me a lot of things, you know, a lot of things about 
world history and and politics and and some lessons I've had to undo since finding out the real truth. But uh, what I discovered along the way was I actually don't watch movies for answers like I thought. I watch movies for questions, for more questions, because every film I watch, particularly classic film, which is often a time capsule of the of the time and place in which it was made, you know, that sends me into other questions and wanting to know more about the story behind the film, wanting to know more about what was happening in that country at that time, about society, and leading me into more research and having conversations with people. And that, I think, is what makes watching classic films so much fun to me is that there's always more to learn, there's always more to explore. Uh, movies change as society changes in, in our eyes and, and what we what we know and, and don't know and how things progress or not progress. So really I, I watch movies for questions and to have these conversations where I don't necessarily have all the answers, but I find such value in that. One of the things I found fascinating in the book is you recount an early film-going experience where you were kind of traumatized by the never-ending story. And I find it fascinating that so many children's films or, or films designed for young people really traumatize their audience. And yet we tend to still fall in love with movies. And I'm curious like, what you think of that. I've thought a lot about this, actually, because that first experience was so traumatizing, seeing what I thought was a real death of a horse on the screen and not understanding that it was a movie. And what I've come to realize is that I'm always somewhat searching for some kind of experience where I go to see a film. I hate going into the movies and walking out and going, meh, that was okay. I love feeling something, whether it is crying or laughing or feeling fear, just something that moves me. And I, I do trace it back to that very initial uh, experience with that film and, like you say, with many other children's films that was that were quite scary. I mean, even The Wizard of Oz is terrifying. The Witch terrified me as a child. And so I think uh, just looking for films that make me feel something, even if it's scared, is uh, something that I constantly chase. And um, I, I love the fact that children's films, particularly from that time in classic films, deal with really dark issues. I mean, even The NeverEnding Story is about grief and, and the huge big blackness, the nothingness of depression and, and dealing with grief as a young child. And that's quite heavy. And whether I understood everything as a child or not, I still see that there is, you know, so, so much value in that, in, in treating kids as intelligent and being able to start to sneak in some of these larger issues into children's entertainment. Now, in revisiting some of these films, were there some films that you fell in love with even more? And were there some films where you were kind of like, ooh, why did I like that one or something? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, one that uh, I, I question is Mad Love <laughs> from 1995 starring Drew Barrymore. This is a film that not many people saw at the time. People still don't really know. It didn't do well with critics. I mean, Chris O'Donnell still says that he hadn't, he's never seen it. He co-starred with Drew Barrymore. But for some reason, the time when I watched it, when I was like 14 years old, that it hit me so hard that I felt like I could relate to Drew Barrymore's character in a really strong way. 
So I knew all the words to the film. I listened to the soundtrack over and over. I cut my hair like Drew. I got my friends to call me Casey, her character's name. I tried to wear all the same outfits and and it was so aspirational to me as a, as a child. And watching that now, I can revert back to how I felt at that time, but I can't quite understand <laughs> as someone who now has watched a volume of films, you know, why that film in particular spoke to me it, it, for some reason. And I think that's something that films do. It can really, uh, sometimes you have those movies that you see the flaws, but it doesn't matter because you love them because you needed to see that film at that particular time in your life. And in revisiting these films, did like a particular film or a particular actress or a particular director kind of just strike you as like, yeah, this is really one that was pivotal for me or really made a mark on me or, you know, that you find more significant than maybe you had originally thought? Yeah, I think... um Marilyn Monroe is an actress that I continue to revisit. She's someone that has beguiled me as a child in trying to figure out who she really was, who this enigma was, what that performance of womanhood actually means, and whether that was something, uh, you know, good for me to watch as a child or not. You know, I, I revisited Gentlemen Fur Blondes and that's a film that when I watched it as a kid, I just fell in love with the bright colors and the, the fantasy of the film and the beautiful women and those costumes and tried to do all the songs and dances. But now as I've grown older and I've become, you know, a feminist and I can look at movies through that lens, I see something totally different. And I see someone who was performing a character that she created for herself, not only playing Lorelai Lee, but she was playing Marilyn Monroe. And I think this is true of her throughout the years. I mean, we keep revisiting her life and keep trying to figure her out because she was a mess of contradictions. She didn't really make sense. I mean, I was even involved with the CNN documentary that aired earlier this year that was called Reframing Marilyn Monroe. And we're doing that a lot with female figures in popular culture these days. And she's one that I still find really fascinating and I haven't quite worked out, but I have a different relationship to her throughout my years as I've grown older. And in addition to being an author, you are also one of the TCM hosts and the TCM Film Festival is coming up. So uh, what are you going to be doing for your book at the festival? I'll be doing a signing at the festival on Sunday at uh, 2 p.m. in the lobby of the Roosevelt Hotel and that'll be really fun to, just to get to see the viewers again you know now it's been two years since we've been able to do a festival in person and uh, the theme is about reuniting and reunions and I think it's just going to be such a big party to see our viewers in person finally after two very long very hard years I mean I never took the festival for granted but this year especially I I'm just thrilled at the idea of sitting in a dark room with strangers <laughs> watching great movies. <laughs> and as a TCM host, you are also introducing a few films at the festival. Is there anyone that you are looking forward to in particular? Yes, I am really looking forward to speaking with Paula Abdul about Singing in the Rain 
because A, I loved Paula Abdul as a child and Singing in the Rain, and B, I find it really fascinating that she has said in the past that watching Singing in the Rain as a child was an informative experience for her and led her to want to start dancing in the first place. So I'm really interested to learn more from her about A, what she feels about the movie, how it changed her life or her experience with the film, and B, also just uh, about the dancing from a choreographer. Singing in the Rain is a film that we've spoken about so many times and it's always fun when you can find a unique angle on it. So I'm interested to talk to her about the dancing itself. And are there any films at the festival that you would like to highlight for people just in terms of your perspective on, you know, watching women in movies? Yeah, I mean, always the pre-code films are a lot of fun and they allowed a lot of freedom for women at that time. And pre-code movies are always really entertaining to watch with a crowd, live, they're fast, they're fun, they're risque. And uh, one that I would highlight is Queen Bee, which stars Joan Crawford. And it's Joan Crawford in her most Joan Crawford-esque role. She plays this uh, socialite who is after all the men and the men cannot help but uh, fall for her. I think technically it can't came later than pre-code, but it's one that came to mind when I thought about that question because, uh, yeah, Joan Crawford, she's such a, a force on screen and a really interesting actress to look at from a feminist perspective. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about your book and about the TCM Film Festival. Thank you. I so appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about my book. Thank you. That was Alicia Malone. Her new book is Girls on Film. Scott McGee's book, Danger on the Silver Screen, 50 Films Celebrating Cinema's Greatest Stunts, is also personal, but in a different way. McGee began by explaining where the impetus for writing the book actually began. Uh, The impetus for starting this book probably began when I was about 10 years old. uh, When I saw in the summer of 1981, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And uh, I saw it three times. And, you know, a lot of kids my age or my generation, their touchstones were Star Wars or Jaws. And of course, those, those, you know, were certainly some touchstones for me, but the major one was Raiders. You know, I saw Temple of Doom three times, also in 84. I saw The Last Crusade in 1989, uh, 10 times at the theater. Really ridiculous. But it was, it was just something about those films that that really resonated with me in terms of there were actual people doing these stunts. I mean, this was a stuntman uh, being dragged underneath the truck. I'd never seen anything like it. And when I got into graduate school, I, uh, I looked at some of the silent films of Harold Lloyd and Buster Keaton and Douglas Fairbanks and wrote a paper on how their stunt work contributed to their to the overall reception of their films. And then when I started at TCM in the fall, or sorry, in the summer of 2000, I shortly thereafter had the chance to recommend some um, programming ideas. And one of them was, have we ever done anything on stunt people, stunt men, stunt women? And they hadn't at that point. And so I had a chance to tag along with a couple of producers to Los Angeles for three days and interviewed 
uh, a number of uh, legends in the business. Uh, people like Terry Leonard, Lauren Janes, Bobby Hoy, uh, Gene LaBelle, Tony Brubaker, um, Rick Seaman, so many other people that your listeners may not know. They may not know their names, and, and there's a reason why. And that just sort of stayed with me, that, that experience. And as the years went by, I, I just started to do research on, on, on this topic, and I just started to amass more and more. I almost felt like I needed to do something with all this research. So I said, okay, well, let me try a book. I've never written a book before. So that's pretty much how it, how it came about. So I, I did serious research on it for about 10 years. And explain to people what the scope of the book is in terms of, or how you're structuring it and what you're including in it. First of all, this is not a full history of, of stunt work in cinema. There have been books written like that by a guy named John Baxter. It was released in the 70s. But this book, what it does is it tries to tell the evolution of stunt work through the lens of 50 films. And so I try to draw... A, a through line in terms of how stunts were perceived, how they were executed in the, in the films themselves. And I try to make the point that stunt work is a serious craft in filmmaking, much like uh, choreography or editing or cinematography is, particularly when it comes to, to choreography. I, you know, because when, when you look at a car chase or a fight scene, or any other thing that, that requires uh, a stunt person, you can look at it as a, a dance of sorts. And I, so I, I look at musical choreography, musical dance numbers, and stunt work in action films to be very similar. And so I tried and I, I wanted this book to, to sort of remind the reader that, gosh, stunt work really is important. And if it wasn't for these men and women taking the breaks and, you know, earning the scrapes, then a lot of the most famous, most memorable moments in motion picture history wouldn't be around, you know, at, like Ben-Hur, the chariot race, that would not be there had it not been for some people. And, and indeed the, the filmmakers of Ben-Hur, just as an example, they wanted, they knew that if the chariot race was no good, the, the film was no good. So, so everything was riding on what they were able to pull off in that, in that one scene. And I think the, the same thing applies for a lot of the films that I write in the book. And why do you think there is a resistance to kind of acknowledging these people? I mean, is it because it goes to, you know, revealing the magic behind it? Or uh, because, you know, there, I don't think there's any other profession in filmmaking where you might risk your life or be set on fire or be asked to jump off a building just as a matter of course. Um, and it seems like that kind of effort should be recognized more. Sure. You know, I, I think that the revealing of the, the, the uh, hesitancy to reveal the magic is used to be part of it. Uh, I, I don't think it's quite there anymore because there's so many, I mean, there's so many uh, people who are who are familiar with how movies are made, so they're not they're not fools. They know that there are stunt people involved. But I would I think it goes back to what I was saying about uh, comparison to other disciplines. 
when you have like a costume designer, for example, I think people know, wow, that, that took quite a lot of artistry to put those gowns together. Uh, but I think that a lot of people assume that crashing a car or setting yourself on fire, how hard is that? How hard could that be? So I think they, I think they dismiss it as being just a journeyman type endeavor that anybody can do it. And while it's true, anybody can crash a car, but there, it takes, it takes a, it, it, it takes an art and a science to really do it cinematically. And that is, I, I think, something that a lot of the general public are missing when it comes to, uh, when it comes to how important great stunts are in the movies. And you do have in your book a number of chapters on silent films, and you have Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd in there. And I think one thing that people may not be consciously aware of is that it's the silent clowns that laid a lot of foundation for stunt work. And because they're doing comedy and we're laughing at what they're doing, it seems like people may not read that as stunt work in the same way that they do, you know, watching The Matrix or The French Connection or something. That's right. Uh, that's why you still today have stunts being referred to as gags by, by people in the profession. Stunt work was largely the purview of comedy films in the early days of the silent era, starting with the films of Max Sennett and even into you know, the superstars of as Keaton and Lloyd and, and uh, even a little bit of Chaplin, but also of Douglas Fairbanks. You know, he before he became a serious period piece adventurer in films like The Mark of Zorro and The Black Pirate, he actually starred in a, you know, in a number of comedies that that depended on his athleticism and his willingness to, you know, to take some risks for the camera. So again, it was all about the funny. It was all it was all about the gag of, of eliciting a laugh. Uh, there were some ex, there were some exceptions to this, like I write about in the book, in in reference to Way Down East, the D.W. Griffith film, where the the thrilling ice uh, flow river scene did require a great deal of risk from the stars Lillian Gish and Richard Bartlemus, but that that's kind of the except that's one of the exceptions really to the overall general rule that yeah it was it was really the the domain of of comedy and in putting this book together did you did your research uncover anything that really surprised you or introduce you to films that you had just kind of skipped over somehow and maybe missed um that's a good question i i think that i don't know if it it uncovered films that i missed uh I will say that I did uncover a bit, bit of research that really, frankly, astounded me, and I, I did, I do make mention of it in the book. Uh, it was it, it's in the chapter where I discuss the James Bond film *Live and Let Die*, and the reason why I wanted to include that is because *Live and Let Die* was one of the first major motion pictures that really took advantage and uh, hired a, a number of African-American stunt people. Uh, it, was, I, it may have even been the first one where an African-American was credited as a stunt coordinator. Uh, that film had a number of, of stunt coordinators, actually. But the reason, but that wasn't what was revealing to me. What was revealing to me is when I 
and I again I included in the book in the chapter on live and let die. I uncovered a, a piece of information from a an early twenties film. It was a Thomas Entz production. Uh, I believe it was called Her Reputation, and Thomas Entz went through to the trouble of damming up a portion of the Colorado River. I believe it was in Arizona, and he created a flood intentionally for for the cameras for two films he actually shot there but the one for i believe again i think it was her reputation uh he had hired a number of african-american extras from a nearby town and hired them to stand on the set that was to then be flooded once the waters were released and according this is according to Ince's own uh, publicity material uh, they rightly refused because they realized this is really dangerous and according again according to the publicity material they were uh, told to stay there by gunpoint a sheriff held them by gunpoint until they finished the scene uh, uh, reportedly no one was hurt but that that tells that showed me a lot of how cavalier people were about safety, and particularly when it came when it came to race. Um, and so I wanted to juxtapose uh, the you know the the coming to prevalence of black stuntmen and women in films like *Live and Let Die* in the early '70s to how they were treated in the early days of cinema. So that really that was a that was something that really really surprised me and, you know, kind of, of course, sickened me, of course. Now, I'm a huge fan of Hong Kong action films and uh, fell in love with those films when I, I got to see them in the late 80s. And one thing that you point out in your book that I had no idea about was the connection between Hong Kong action and the Sand Pebbles. Yep. Yep. There was a, a, the, the production of the Sand Pebbles, which was uh, directed by Robert Wise, shot in Hong Kong. And so they, they had worked with a number of, of, I guess you would call, I, I don't know if you would call them actors, but they were, I don't know if you would, if they were technically stuntmen, local stuntmen from Hong Kong, but these, uh, actors, these martial, I think a lot of them, uh, did, uh, specialize in martial arts. They learned a lot of techniques of how to pull off stunts for the camera. And once the Sand Pebbles production closed, a lot of these n n new stunt people in Hong Kong uh, continued to train uh, and to learn from what they had been taught on the set of that film. And, uh, and indeed, there's, there's a rumor, <coughs> and I, I never could corroborate this, but there was a rumor that, Char that uh, Jackie Chan was a little boy near the set of the sand pebbles. I'm not sure. I think that's apocryphal, but, um, what it, but it is true that, uh, according to Lauren Janes and I got, I got this also from, a, a stunt coordinator named Jeff Amata, uh, that, yeah, that there is a, a direct line from Hollywood stuntmen to Hong Kong action cinema, particularly when it comes to stunts. Well, and also, uh, stuntman extraordinaire Jackie Chan has also credited, 
silent clowns like Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd and dancers like Gene Kelly for teaching him not just about stunts, but also about how to shoot stunts. That's right. That's right. He's he's long been he's not been shy about about uh, sharing his love of, of silent cinema. And you see his allusions to various people like like Harold Lloyd or sorry. Um, well, yeah, Harold Lloyd. He did a gag in one of his films where he's hanging on a clock and another one where he is, uh, you know, there's a, a wall fall that uh, falls on top of it, much like Keaton did in uh, Steamboat Bill Jr. And you also go into some detail about the people surrounding stuntmen. So explain to people what second unit directors do and why they're key in terms of the stunt work. So a second unit director, what what that person does is they often uh, shoot scenes that don't necessarily require dialogue or the main actors. So, for example, if you know, and they, you know, second unit directors are still prevalent today, of course, and it can be something that they shoot as as complicated as the chariot race from Ben Hur, or it could be just an establishing shot. You know, they they can have a a, a camera unit that 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 shoots an overall uh, scene or a, a setting to establish. Okay, we're now in a different place in terms of in terms of the of the narrative. But in the book, uh, I I really make a point of saying how important second unit directors are, because often they were the ones do, actually directing the scenes that so many of these stunt people took part in, 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 in the book. Um, so again, Ben-Hur, uh, there were two second unit directors employed on there. One was Yakima Kanut and another one named Andrew Martin. And this scene was so huge, uh, so complicated and ambitious that it really took more than one second unit director to pull it off. And William Wyler, the credited director of Ben-Hur, said, yeah, make no mistake about it. Andrew Martin and Yakima Kanut, they directed the chariot race. So second unit directors are, I think, a largely unsung, uh, unsung profession in Hollywood for that very reason. But uh, again, we, we wouldn't have a lot of these scenes without a lot of these stunts, really, without uh, the uh, expertise of the, of the second unit director. And TCM, in their programming and also at the film festival itself, has occasionally focused on stunt people. And I I think one of my favorite discussions was with uh, Terry Leonard. I think it was for Wind in the Line. And so uh, are you involved with programming those kind of components to uh, the festival? Oh, yeah. Those are all my ideas. So starting in 2013, I had proposed we do a panel discussion with three stunt legends. And so I conducted a conversation in Club TCM with uh, Lauren Janes, uh, Jeannie Epper, and Conrad Palmisano. Uh, and then two years later, I believe in 2015, we were brainstorming, okay, who do we, who do we honor as a tribute for, for this year's festival? And for your listeners, just so they know, when TCM has a tribute, we usually do about three tributes per year. We try to honor people that that don't often get celebrated, people that that maybe a lot of people don't even know. And so I said, you know, there's a there's a stunt man, a stunt coordinator, and a second unit director 
named Terry Leonard. And I, I, I gave a brief rundown of his credits. And I said, I think this would be a really fantastic idea. Not only can we have a, a Club TCM conversation, but we can also show Raiders of the, of the Lost Ark. And that was Terry doubling Harrison Ford uh, in the truck gag when he gets dragged underneath. And then The Wind of the Lion. And so, yeah, so that was, that was me. Uh, I did the conversation with Terry and Club TCM as well and talked to him in front of uh, uh, The Wind of the Lion. And, and I, I've, I've, uh, I worked with Terry once, once more uh, when Filmstruck was around. And then I sent him my book uh, because I, ded I dedicated it to him actually. So yeah, it's, that's one of the great things about the film festival is you get those opportunities to, to celebrate people that sometimes are overlooked. And a lot of these stunt people are really fun to talk to. I mean, it's not just like the crazy stories they have, but they, you know, they also, they don't seem to uh, have a lot of ego in the way. They seem to really be focused on what do we do to make this film better? Like, how do we make this work on the screen so people's jaws drop? Yeah, that's uh, that's something that that's very true. And I, I, I believe that if I were to say to a stunt person, you know, you really are an artist, uh, they would probably laugh at me because I think a lot of them th think of themselves as craftsmen people who are there to do is, is what John Ford said, a job of work. And they, yeah, they do whatever it takes to get it done. First and foremost, they want to do it safely. And, but they, but they also want to help uh, fulfill the, the vision of the director, the vision of the screenplay and do it in a way that, you know, put some uh, jingle in, in their pocket and able to go home to a, a, a job well done. You know, the other thing I, you know, that occurred to me when I, when I witnessed the uh, stunt people when I was on that shoot in 2002, they were, they, they reminded me a lot of, of firefighters, people who, um, who are very close knit, even though there are some rivalries in the, in the business, but they're largely very close knit and uh, they are, you know, rough around the edges uh, a lot of them I found in my research and talking to people are very are actually uh, very spiritual, uh, which I guess you'd have to be if you're doing putting your life on the line sometimes. Um, but yeah, I but I think your your assessment is is right. They are very matter of fact, and let's just get it done. And one of the films screening at this year's TCM Film Festival, which is back in person, is going to feature Jackie Chan, which you do highlight in your book. So are you excited about this? Very excited. Uh, Drunken Master 2, uh, which was released in, I believe, 94, is one of his best films. It, it, is, uh, it, it is a perfect encapsulation of what, what makes Jackie Chan so charming and so... Imminently uh, watchable. I mean, just to watch Jackie Chan move on screen is it, it, it belies what he sees in Gene Kelly, because Gene Kelly, when he's in the, in his uh, dance numbers or even in a, just a a regular scene involving dialogue, nobody moved like Gene Kelly, and Jackie Chan is the same way. He so much of his character, so much, so much of his persona 
is wrapped up in just how he moves across the screen. And you certainly get this sense in Drunken Master 2. It's also hilarious. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about his work, too, is that, you know, he'll be doing this incredible fight where he's displaying amazing skill, and then suddenly he'll do something absolutely ridiculous and silly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, that's the obvious film at the festival that I would say, you know, highlights stunt work. But is there anything else at the festival that maybe we might not be aware of as having something that we should be looking for? So one of the films that I would highly recommend anybody who's interested in stunt work see is a film called Spy Smasher Strikes Back. Spy Smasher Strikes Back is actually a new cut of a 1942 12-chapter serial called Spy Smasher. And so what a there's a, a filmmaker, an Academy Award-winning uh, a sound designer and editor, whom we've, we have worked with many, many times, named Ben Burt. Uh, ben has Ben is a legend in the business, and he is one of the most gregarious people I've ever met. Well, he, he had this idea of, of uh, taking the 12th chapter serial and cutting it down to a 90-minute feature. And so Paramount, who is the rights holder of the, of the serial, said, sure, go for it. And so... What, what it is, it's a distillation of some of the greatest stuntmen working in Hollywood working in Hollywood at the time. Spy Smasher was produced at Republic Studios, which was known as being a, a, um, pretty much a, a farm team for stunt people. That's where they really learned and honed their craft and did it, learned how to do stunts safely again, but also quickly because serials back then were... That you didn't have time to, to dilly-dally. You had to get the shot done fast. And so there was a squad of stunt people uh, led by Yakima Kanut uh, who routinely pulled off these stunts. And there were other people uh, like Dale Van Sickle and Carrie Lofton, uh, Dave uh, Davy Sharp, uh, and, uh, uh, Tom Steele, and others who were all over Spy Smasher Strikes Back. Uh, now at the at the event, Ben Burt will give the introduction, and he'll he'll go through he'll go through all of this history, particularly when it comes to the stunt guys. But you will see some really amazing work in in Spy Smasher Strikes Back, and you could do it not without having to sit through twelve hours of, of chapters, but in in a ninety minute feature. So it's really it's really a lot of fun. Plus, I will go see any presentation that Ben does at TCM. So will. So will I. Oh, and, uh, oh, and speaking of Ben, I should also mention the flame in the arrow. So Ben is joined by his uh, colleague and friend uh, Craig Barron, also an Academy Award winner, and they do presentations every year at the festival. Well, they're doing one on the flame in the arrow, which is a, a swashbuckling film starring Burt Lancaster. Uh, Burt does do a lot of his own stunts in the flame in the arrow. And uh, so that's that's going to be and I don't I could tell you a few stories behind it, but I I don't want to steal their thunder uh, for the flame and the arrow. But that's another one you really should see. All right. Well, those will go to the top of my list now. And what do you think it is about stunt work that really 
rivets people. I mean, you can feel the energy in a theater when some spectacular stunt or even as a smaller one is happening. But like when Jackie Chan is doing something or during some of those long takes in John Wick, I mean, you can really feel the audience just so engaged with what's going on. And what do you think about that, um, you know, really fascinates an audience? I believe that people become more invested in what is happening on the screen and in the, in the story when they know that real flesh and blood is, is being, you know, is, is being bruised. Going back to Raiders of the Lost Ark, when you see Indiana Jones being dragged behind a truck or, you know, doing all sorts of other uh, daring do's, you know that that's a real person. You know that they, that somehow they have manufactured uh, a, a real live human being to be dragged underneath a diesel truck. And so even though you, you may know, well, that Harrison Ford isn't doing that. It's a stunt guy. Your, your brain still allows you to, uh, to, to, to become invested and to suspend disbelief that, that that is actually Harrison Ford. That's really Indiana Jones. And, if I could contrast it to the last Indiana Jones film, uh, which was the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, there was there was so much CGI in that film that it took it really took me out of it. There were some exceptions, you know, the the opening scene inside a massive warehouse. There was also a chase scene on a college campus. Those were all done practically. And that, that, that felt like the old Indiana Jones that I grew up with. So, get, so, you know, to get back to your question, I think people, they become more invested when they know that people are actually doing this stuff. And I think people just enjoy seeing human bodies in motion. Again, it's, it's like what I said about choreography. People enjoy watching people move in, in a way that they can't. And that's, that's the thing about stunt people, too. They're doing things that people at home or people in the theater, they can't do. Or should not do. <laughs> Precisely. Or should not do. Yeah. As I used to tell my son when he was little. But the other thing, too, about it is, and I, I, my son grew up loving, I mean, I showed him Jackie Chan films when he was three years old, and he would set up obstacle courses in the house. But the thing about it is they need no translation. You need no words. Um any country, you know, you can be in any country, speaking any language, being any age, and what's occurring on the screen still reads for you. Yeah, it's it's a universal language. Um, I think that's why action films are so are so prevalent in international markets is because you know there's not heavy dialogue to follow, and people, you know, viewers from all over the world. Uh, they understand action films. They understand stunts. Uh, you know, there's another cinema uh, outside of Hong Kong and in America that also uses a lot of stunt work, and that's Bollywood. Uh, there's a number of uh, films that I looked at. I didn't include them in the book uh, because I wanted to concentrate just on uh, films that had a major, a major American release, as I mentioned in the forward, or I should say, the introduction. Bollywood uh, Indian films do a lot of stunt work in their films, a lot of uh, very elaborate, fanciful action films. Um, 
and they there's so much work over there, in fact, that they've hired over the years a number of American stunt coordinators to uh, to do work over there uh, in, in, in those uh, foreign films. Well, and I would call some of their dance sequences close to stunt work. <laughs> They're so elaborate. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Well, I want to thank you very much for uh, talking about your book and about the festival. It was really a joy to go through because I so admire these stunt people and wish they got a little more credit for what they do. Absolutely, Beth. I totally agree. And thank you so much for having me. That was Scott McGee. He and Alicia Malone will be at the TCM Classic Film Festival this weekend, as will I. Thanks for listening to another bonus episode of Cinema Junkie. If you like what you hear, please leave a review or just recommend it to a friend. And if you want to follow my adventures at TCM Classic Film Festival and discover some movies with me, then follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Cinebeth. I'll be back next month with regular episodes. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team, Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I.